Joining us today on The Grapevine, we have Dr. Heather Ashby. Now, she's a foreign policy and national security expert in Washington, D.C. She has worked at the intersection of homeland security and international affairs and on U.S.-Russia relations at the Department of Homeland Security. 2014, she got her Ph.D. in Russian and global history from the University of Southern California uh, with a focus on relationship between the Soviet Union and people from Asia, Africa, and the Americas. From 2012 to 2013, she served as a born fellow in Moscow, Russia, and was named by New America as a Black American National Security and Foreign Policy Next Generation Leader in 2018. That is a, excuse me, a long title, I guess, if you will, as a mouthful. She currently serves as a program leader for the Women of Color Advancing Peace, Security, and Conflict Transformation, WCAPS, Gender Program, and co-chair of the WCAPS Intersectionality of National Security Sub-Working Group and a board member for the Washington, D.C. chapter of the Women in International Security Organization. You have a few published articles, in particular in Foreign Policy and Inkstick is the document. And a fun fact, it says that you love historical romance novels. So, mm-hmm. y'all, welcome to the show, Dr. Heather Ashby. Welcome, welcome. Yeah, I couldn't be more excited to be here. When I was starting out in grad school, there was no one at all who looked like me. And so mm. now, years later, I see more people in the field, African-Americans coming up in Russia studies and looking at Eastern Europe, the Caucasus and Central Asia. And so now they're getting more of a voice because of social media platforms that allow them to share an alternative view and historical facts than what the dominant narratives are out there. And you know what? We are just finishing Black History Month and entering women's history. And I feel like you are definitely somebody that we have to look up to. You have a very unique path that, like you just said, you didn't see many people that look like you. Because I was just thinking when I read your bio earlier, I was like, what led her down this path? What made so what made you become interested in Russian affairs and things of that nature? Yeah, it is quite random and it happened in undergrad. <laughs> and mm-hmm. so I was just in a world literature class and I was reading a Russian literature book from the 19th century, Dostoevsky, titled The Possessed. And so I was really intrigued by that book and just the way my mind operates, I wanted to know the historical context in which the work was written. And at the same time, I was reading Toni Morrison and some of the themes seemed similar to me that reached out. So then that started me down a path of exploring like relations between Black people and the Soviet Union. And then there were some people who came before me one Howard University professor whose name escapes me right now, but during the like 1980s was digging deeply into this issue of looking at Black people in Russia. And Mm -hmm. so from there, I just had professors who just supported me in this interest, who had some experience in political activism and engagement with Russian ideas during the Cold War. And so they just helped to foster that interest. And it was all Black professors who helped to foster this interest. And so then mm-hmm. I just went to grad school to dig more deeply into it and to look at how the anti-colonial struggles that emerged over the course of the 20th century were intersected with the emergence and evolution of the Soviet Union. So that's all pretty like random, but it made like the past just made sense in my mind as I was going through grad school. Great to have your voice at the table to represent not only the Black voice, but a female perspective. So we definitely appreciate you and 
our pleasure. It's our pleasure to have you here to talk with us today. Could you break it down? What is going on in Russia and Ukraine? Why are they fighting? We've heard it all over the media. Maybe we can get somebody just to help us to understand. Yeah, I think the challenge is it's extremely multi-layered and complex. And so mm -hmm. the way the news is portraying it, it reduces it to like digestible sound bites that fully doesn't portray the nuance. And right. so there are a couple of reasons, and I think some of them are relatable in terms of examples in the United States. I will start with one of the big reasons that Russia is engaged in this activity is this sort of imperial empire mindset that mm -hmm. it's entitled to exercise control on the countries near its borders. And so mm -hmm. it's been doing this since the fall of the Soviet Union. It, it sort of went in the downwards uh, spiral during the 1990s. And then once Putin came to power in 1999, it sort of accelerated up. This is something that's been lodged in his mindset of returning this Russia to this former glory, not just the Soviet Union, but the Tsar's empire, aspects of that and greatness. That's a dangerous ideology, especially in this time period. And mm -hmm. what you get sort of show it on a smaller scale is just how can someone who may be bigger or think they're better have the ability to exercise control over another individual if the individual wants to take their own path in life. That right be forced to go down a path or engage in activities that violate their values, their rights, all in name because someone bigger wants them to do it. Right. So, I mean, that sounds like the bully on the playground, right? <laughs> exactly. Except this bully has nuclear weapons. So if the bully on the playground <laughs> had like a machine gun and you just show up and be like, let's have some dialogue. And I gave right. up my machine gun because I wanted you to respect me as a person. And that's what Ukraine did. After the fall of the Soviet Union, it gave up its nuclear weapons to Russia under an agreement that Russia would respect the territorial integrity of Ukraine. Another issue that's Probably the one that circulated most within the media is NATO and the expansion of NATO. Right. So I was talking to my nephew because we just talk about politics and I'm always curious to see what Gen Z is talking about. And he said, oh, people in my classroom think NATO is a country. So I just want to clarify NATO isn't a country. It's right. an alliance, a North Atlantic Treaty organization that mm -hmm. brings together countries in Europe and the United States. It emerged during after World War II and has been in operation since then. And during uh, the period of the Cold War, its purpose was to sort of be a counter to the Warsaw Pact, which was a collection of countries under, under the Soviet Union right. uh, and alliances. And so what Putin has issues with is that NATO has expanded since the fall of the Cold War. Mm -hmm. And it's expanded into countries that you used to be under the Soviet Union and which he wants to bully and control and say that determine their destiny and future. Uh, so he wants friends is what you're saying. Um, yeah. He wants friends, but he wants to force the friendship. 
Right. Right. <laughs> it's, it's like when you see the pictures of him and his advisors at the table, right? They're all on one end of the table and he's at the other end. Where I guess it's like it's the force. You're forced to be here. Forced friends, forced advisors. And so with that history of Putin and, you know, I think folks who, who have been paying attention uh, even before this, they've had the jokes about him being that bully and, and his background. You know, you, you talked about because of NATO, this is why we are a part of it. But you wrote it was last year. You had put countering Putin's grand strategy was a piece that you co-authored. What is the big deal about Putin? Because you hear folks say, you know, he's unpredictable or he may be unhinged now or, you know, folks don't know what he's going to do. I guess. So what is the big deal about him and why is he such a threat like that? I think what's important to note about Putin is in that article I wrote and it bases off my like radical uh, experience is that what Russia does in Europe then spreads to the global south. So countries in the America and Africa and Southeast Asia. And so that could have implications for countries where the majority of people are people of color, so the global majority. So he has aspirations there in terms of exerting Russia's influence. And this could have negative implications in terms of conflicts that are taking place in different parts of Africa, such as the coup in Mali, Burkina Faso. And so there's been rumors about Russia's presence in those types of countries. It may or may not be fully true, but it's just that idea that Russia could then go into any country outside of Europe and also push forward this type of bullying, this environment of conflict that inflames tensions between ethnic groups, religious groups, nationalities, and races just to achieve power, influence for Russia, and have economic benefits, not only for the Russian government, but the oligarchs those big people that we see uh, being sanctioned now who with their yachts are partially gaining some of those funds by activities outside of Europe. So building off their wealth based on what they're doing to people of color in different parts of the world. Right. You mentioned the, the, the oligarchs. And, you know, there's a guy on Twitter who's tracked their planes, um, has created some program, whatever. That's tracking their planes, and then the U.S. is tracking their their yachts now. With the sanctions that are on them, or how much of an influence do they have on Putin, or is he really kind of controlling them, and they're just kind of you know giving him money? So I think it's more the latter. So they're not really exerting control over Putin. He has been extremely skilled at his ability to take people within the Russian security services, different parts of the government, defense, foreign ministry, as well as these wealthy people and balancing their interests to keep tensions down so no one (laughs) tries to stage a coup and kills him. And so when he may want to put forward or the Russian government has an interest in a particular area, they could call on these oligarchs to help fund that particular initiative or the oligarchs will go on their own adventures to try to see what will be useful for the Russian government to explore further. An example of this is there's an oligarch named Yevgeny Prigozhin, and he is funding, overseeing, it's still unclear, 
but his money is involved in a private military contractor that's been charged with human rights abuses in the Central African Republic and is popping up all over Africa. And they started out in Ukraine, Syria, and then moved on to Africa. What's going on there is that they are helping to inflame conflicts instead of achieving peace. They're making profits off of mining operations there. And then they're also providing military assistance. That's something that oligarchs operate on their own and then bring in the Russian government to say to beef up arm cells to provide military advisors and so it's interlinked but at times the oligarchs could go off on their own but it's more of staying within the frame of what would be useful for Putin and the Russian state or aspects of the Russian state and then with Prigozhin something that's been very interesting for me and what I'm tracking is how he may have contributed to troll farms in West Africa and the English-speaking countries there that then targeted African-Americans with election disinformation during the last election. And so that's why it's also another important reason to track what Russia is doing in different parts of the world and track Putin and his activities because it could have that more smaller micro view of impacting Black people and other communities of color in the United States. So just for so folks are, are aware, could you explain to them what troll farm is? Because I don't want people thinking that, you know, they're growing trolls um, <laughs> out there. So, yeah, no problem. So the troll farms are just people on social media. It could be Facebook. It could be Twitter, whose job is to figure out what would sort of cause people to fight and inflame whatever tensions may be going on in a society and just sit there and post on social media develop bots who could also do that type of uh, AI work without someone writing out everything explicitly. And so those are the troll farms that were used to target African-Americans. And I don't know if you and also our listeners, if they want to know more about Troll Farm, there is a documentary in Dr. Ashby, I Am Your Documentary Girl here. It's called Agents of Chaos. It's on HBO. It's really good and it outlines exactly what you were talking about as far as the Russian troll farms, how they've utilized them in other countries, have affected their elections, have divided political lines and divided countries and things of that nature. It is really good. And it's on HBO. So you have to check it out. Yeah. Thanks for your recommendation. I love documentaries, so I will get on top of that (laughs) right away. So I love to hear that you enjoy documentaries. Yes. Yes. This is, I guess, one of the other big questions. We've heard about Putin. We know, you know, or we don't. We, we, I guess we're learning more and more about his strategy in this particular situation. But we know, but for the most part, his, what's it called? We're going to call it personality, I guess. But, and sometimes it's frame of mind. And we understand that there is something going on. If, even if people don't understand the whole grasp of everything, there's issues going on between Ukraine and Russia. So then I guess the most question that I've gotten over and over again is why are we in this? Like, what's the U.S.? What does it have to do with us? Why why can't we just stay out of this? You know, send them a couple of dollars and just stay out. Yeah, I think that's a good question and something that various people are debating across the political spectrum, which is great in terms of being in a democratic society that we could have these conversations so openly. And I think for the United States, there are a few reasons why it's of interest to us. One is that Russia is a nuclear power. You don't get countries with that capability active in conflicts like this so often. It's quite rare once you think about it. You don't have 
China really invade in Taiwan, at least right now, or another country in which a U.S. involvement may trigger and escalate to nuclear war. And so that's a situation that could, that's the context for this, is to make sure that it doesn't escalate to the point that maybe NATO or Germany or France feels the need to become involved militarily because it would quickly escalate. And Putin has already said in warning statements that there will be the use of some type of force on the Russia side by the likes that no one has ever seen. The other aspect is larger than even nuclear war. It's just the foundations of our whole international system, such as, for instance, the United Nations. That really came about the charter, the respect for sovereignty, self-determination after World War II. And so the U.S. was a prominent country that helped shape the international system. And we have benefited in our own individual daily ways by the U.S. being a prominent member of that international system, particularly economically. It's one of the reasons why we're able to print our money so often at the same time as being in debt is because the dollar is such a prominent feature of the international system. And so what Russia is doing in Ukraine, it looks like a conflict just between Russia and Ukraine, but it has wider implications for a challenge to the international system that the United States has played a prominent role in building and the evolution of that system. So an attack on that system and sort of its crumbling could have impacts on us in our daily lives in terms of the opportunities that are for U.S. businesses, small businesses to sort of expand outside the United States, debt structuring, your investments, mutual funds, all your 401ks, just playing around on your phone, invest in stocks. And so it, it's pretty much larger than that. And then the other aspect of it is looking at oil prices and gas. We import, the United States imports over 10% of our oil from Russia. And so that gives them a certain amount of leverage in this conflict because we're still paying for that oil. Europe is still paying for the gas and other countries are paying for the oil. So they're already funding the conflict through those payments. And so just thinking about climate change is that if we have been building over time to sort of wean ourselves off of fossil fuel, it would have given Russia less leverage mm -hmm. over us and in this conflict. So it sort of ties into a variety of things that just not like, oh, NATO shouldn't have expanded or this is just a small conflict between Russia and Ukraine. It has wider implications for the United States and people in their daily lives and their jobs, their retirement, their futures. Got it. And you know, I, I know with a lot of conflict, it's sometimes everybody looks for the oil and gas reference and seeing how they're tied to, tied to natural resources. But in this particular instance, there's also the, is it the Nord Pipeline? And correct me if I'm wrong. I think it was that they were, uh, Russia was building it and they currently stopped building, working on this pipeline. Is there any tie to that because of the fact that they'll be slowing production and distribution of their oil and gas? And so for that pipeline, it's already built. And so what the sanctions have been is just the certification process that will allow it to move forward in terms of being operational. Got it. There is the possibility that in response to sanctions, Russia could stop oil exports or gas, turn off the shutoff valve, like some giant shutoff valve to Europe. Uh, <laughs> to limit gas exports. And then that will be a whole host of issues in terms of if that shuts down, oil prices and gas will continue to go up. We in our daily lives will get an energy bill that's 
a lot higher than it is now. And so right. one of the things that the administration is trying to do is limit that damage to the average American by opening up strategic oil reserves and putting pressure on countries that are oil exporting nations to sort of increase their production to counterbalance what Russia may do in response. Yeah, when you say that the U.S. is pressuring other countries to produce more oil, is that just a phone call saying do some more? Or is it other ways that, and I guess what are the other ways they're doing this to get these countries to play ball? One is to determine what they want in response or in the cooperation. Like U.S. negotiating negotiation skills are on full display right now in terms of determining the berries, berries of interest of countries that export oil to see what we could give in response. And so one of the things that's going to come out of this conflict is just the long-term ramifications of that. So what we may be promising in return may not just be something that's short-term, it could be something more long-term. It could also be in terms of whether the U.S., instead of switching to more greener technologies, will ramp up fracking to ensure that we have a constant source of oil for the future that doesn't rely on foreign partners. It could also be an increase in nuclear technology in various states in order to sustain our electrical grid and other uh, uses of electricity. So it, various things could happen out of this conflict between Russia and Ukraine that could have widespread ramifications. You were talking about the, the sanctions that are happening and you have a lot of people like, why are we going, who feel like, you know, we're going soft on Russia and they don't care or not concerned about the people of Russia because it appears for a large chunk from what we've been seeing that the people of Russia Russia and citizens of Russia, they don't really want to do this war. And I know you lived there for, I guess, about a year or so you lived there in Russia. Could you give some people, I guess, maybe a, just a feel of how the citizens, the people in Russia are and how they may be different from, you know, Putin, who is the face of their country? Yeah. So for me, my I enjoyed my experience in Russia. And it may seem weird that a Black person in Russia who clearly stands out in every environment would enjoy their time in Russia, but I did. And so I met a lot of friendly people, great people, and it was mainly young people who were mm -hmm. interested in opportunities beyond Russia. But the challenges of doing that, of having enough money to travel, of moving to another country, of going through the whole visa process was sort of a hindrance for many of them in terms of seeking other opportunities. So it was that interest and being more open to the West and the United States in particular, from my experience, that I don't think we fully took advantage of because shortly after my, I left there, then it was the Russia invaded Ukraine for the first time of the 21st century. And then sanctions came down. And then a lot of the exchange programs that are key to facilitating that type of dialogue, interaction with people on the ground in their daily lives between Americans and Russians just were cut off. And so then you stop opportunities for young people on both sides to get to know each other, to experience each other's culture that can serve as a foundation for future cooperation, because who knows where those people may end up in the future. 
And so that was a challenge. And one thing I always found funny while being in Russia is that people would stop me and ask me for directions. And I was like, out of all the people who are walking by, you find the one black person and ask me for directions in Russia. And so I, I couldn't get over that fact. So that was the type of environment I encountered in Russia. It may be much different now, mm-hmm. given the whole environment and the constant propaganda that's anti-West, anti-United States. Right. Um, but I think there are a lot of young people in Russia, millennials, Gen Z, who want other opportunities, who don't want to participate in this war. But the way that Putin has over time, but particularly in recent years, crushed civil society in such a brutal manner. It's uh-huh. just that if you can't have independent media now about its label being foreign agents, and even if they are labeled that, they could still be arrested they'd be tried on trumped up charges. And so even having the ability to have this conversation could be subject to intervention from security services. So it could be like the FBI right now coming in and telling us that they don't like what we're talking about, arrest us, and we can go to jail for whatever time period you think would be useful to send a message to your friends and your families not to engage in these type of conversations. Right, and so in his State of the Union speech, President Biden announced that they would no longer be allowing Russia planes to fly in U.S. airspace. So you talk about the sanctions and you're talking about the young people who are there and how they are interested in what's happening over here. How is that going to impact, I guess, the situation? And and why make that move? Well, you may have some people say, well, just because if I can't come from Russia, maybe I can catch a plane from Russia to France or somewhere and still come over to the U.S. Yeah, I think the challenge is what the what Biden is trying to balance and what we mentioned is like people don't think he's going harder on Russia, while others are like, you need to be recognized that if you push Russia to the extremes, Putin may respond in a very bad way with powerful weapons that may not even be nuclear uh, towards mm-hmm. Ukraine. And so I think the administration is trying to strike a balance, but in imposing sanctions, it's very difficult not to have that trickle down to the everyday impact mm-hmm. over citizens. And I think the administration is making a trade-off that to stop this war in the short term, they're willing to take the long-term cost of possibly having these young people not have favorable views of the United States or the West. I'm sort of split on whether that will happen because they are gaining a better understanding through social media channels, even as Putin is cracking down on independent media through applications like Telegram or TikTok and WhatsApp of what's taking place. And so they'll have that recognition that they're paying a price for this person's personal vendetta against NATO, against Ukraine, against the international system. So it could be that this encourages more Russians to protest, to sacrifice their freedom in the name of challenging Putin and letting him know that you do not have our consent for this war as you continue it. Right. You know, Apple has come out and said they're stopping sales of iPhones. We have Cash App and banks that are saying that they don't want to have any more money transactions, that they're suspending that. Actually, I have seen the conversation that even from an intellectual property, which I'm an IP lawyer myself, that they're saying that maybe trademarks and copyrights and patents should be suspended and we shouldn't allow that. I feel like it's a balance between, like you said, that people being penalized for one person versus 
is this going to be effective to really stop the uh, the fighting, if you will? And it, would this be an effective sanction to help reach the goal that Biden would want to uh, accomplish? So, I mean, what are your thoughts as far as business-wise, cutting off our businesses, cutting off that, uh, I guess, that bridge, if you will, between here and, and Russia? I think what will be useful for the administration is to support small businesses that may be heavily impacted by that action. And that could be something that the administration may be doing behind the scenes through the Commerce Department or other government agencies to support small businesses that could be hurt or are hurting because of these sanctions. I think one of the challenges that's taking place is the sanctions are happening so quickly and there are so many of them that there may be problems with the U.S. government having the infrastructure to track all of them and execution. And so that's why they'll be relying on European partners and larger businesses like banks to make sure that they are executing the rules of the sanctions and not going beyond that to engage Russians. So I would say I hope the administration is supporting U.S. small businesses that may be have those patents or other engagement with Russians that were critical to those businesses in the U.S. Right. Yeah, as you know, both of y'all are, are talking about businesses. You know, you you had Shell, I believe it was Shell, mm-hmm. who was pulled out of Russia as well, or they were invested. Uh, and I think they were getting was it like thirteen billion? I believe is what it was. Thirteen million, thirteen billion, crazy amount of money from that. And they've withdrawn. They yeah, okay, we can't participate in this. Uh, I know the soccer, I believe FIFA. it was FIFA. They suspended stuff going on over there in Russia. One of the tournaments was supposed to be there, and even it seems like a lot of the world, you know, you even had Switzerland, who uh, is you know notoriously neutral when it comes to anything even getting engaged so it, it it seems like the the world is against what's happening right right now is that a feeling that y'all have been seeing or witnessing and i guess why is that i would say that what's been unique about this war is that it's playing out in real time on social media so people even if some of the videos aren't accurate are still feeling like they are witnessing the violence that's taking place and they need to do something and the u.s needs to respond and other countries need to respond and so that's been one of the factors motivating this push by organizations big companies and governments to respond is because they're being pushed by their citizens in various countries to support the ukrainians i would caveat in terms of the idea of it's global i think being within the united states and our connections to europe it looks like it's global but a lot of countries in the global south are facing challenges in terms of whether they support the u.s perspective of pursuing sanctions and or whether they will just abstain and just say hey just do dialogue because we have our own problems to worry about and we can't get involved in this and so there's been different reactions and outside of the united states and europe to this that's worth considering but it's not receiving enough traction because it interrupts the narrative that it's the whole world that's supporting Ukraine right now. Right, right. But also, you know, even some of those videos have been of Africans that were living in Ukraine and that were trying to leave the area and were either being denied or being pushed back. Have you heard anything as far as what's going on? And, you know, a lot of people are calling it racism at the border of them trying to escape. Is that what you're seeing as well? Yeah, I would put it within the larger context of a process that's been going on ever since 
the Syria uprising that triggered the civil war, our war in Afghanistan, the bombing of Libya that then pushed all these migrants from the Middle East, North Africa to Europe. Mm -hmm. And so what I see now with Africans being stopped at the border is part of that bigger picture because what hasn't received enough attention since that initial wave in which we saw a lot of people from the Middle East and North Africa going on boats, dying in the Mediterranean or walking by foot by hundreds of miles is just that there's a lower scale migration still going on from those conflict regions. And so that's needed up with this Ukraine refugee crisis and now as well with Africans wanting to leave Ukraine and possibly other countries in the region for fear that Russia is going to expand its type of military operations. So I think right. it's uh, within a broader context of Europe having challenges accepting all these diverse immigrants and migrants who are coming to their borders and a lot of it's hidden in Eastern Europe, which you have more conservative parties over there. And some of them like Poland and Hungary have been called out by the European Union for their democratic backsliding. And those are some of the countries in terms of Poland where these African migrants are going right now. Mm. To make sure that we understand it's more, like you said from the beginning, there's more underlying things with this situation that is going on that we don't necessarily understand. And I think that that is right, really some great insight. I'm not saying that everything has been handled correctly from our, well, from what the sound bites that we see, we'll put it that way. But also there's more movement going on than just the people that are trying to flee Ukraine itself. Yeah, it's a lot. So it's a lot of issues that have been building in Europe, building between the United States and Russia, the West and Russia, the conflicts that have been taking place that allow people to then migrate to Europe, to take boats to Europe, that are all converging together through this conflict. And so that's why it's becoming so multifaceted, multi-layered and interconnected. And that's why you see the way the governments are responding because they see this urgency, not just with Ukraine, but so many other factors that are overlapping with it. Gotcha. Yeah, so we've seen countries like China and North Korea who, for the most part, they haven't taken a stance. China released uh, you know, their their message at the very beginning that was, wasn't necessarily in support of the war, but was saying ah, every country should be able to decide their borders, which it seems like, you know, is trying to, to tote that line of, you know, do whatever. Should we be concerned about how they haven't taken a stance yet, knowing that, you know, China is one of the allies of Russia. They've worked together and, and Putin has worked hard to make relations happen in North Korea. Do you know if there's been any talks with these governments to indicate their stance or should this be a concern as you talk about, you know, we don't want to come down with too heavy of a hand and do too much. Uh, would you say those two are factors into the concerns? I think so, because in terms of your question and looking at the broader picture, there are the potential ramification that could ripple through the international system that would then trigger other countries to respond in ways to a situation that they're involved in a conflict that could then trigger more widespread humanitarian crises uh, and conflict challenges. For instance, China and India have been locked in a dispute over a region of their border for decades. And so one fear is that if the 
United States and Europe didn't come down hard on Russia for Ukraine, India could have a fear that China would then enroach on that border disagreement and take land. And so it has ramifications. In terms of Russia and China, there's speculation among Russia experts that when Putin met with Xi a couple of weeks ago, one of the things he noted to Xi is like, hey, buddy, I, I have these troops at the border and I'm going to do something. And she was like, can you please not do this during the Olympics? Because I'm trying to put on a big show for the world. And so Putin was like, I got you. And so as soon as the closing ceremony happened, the next day Putin invaded Ukraine. And so wow. it's that type of relationship that takes place between Russia and China and mm -hmm. agreements that emerged during that meeting between President Xi and Putin in terms of China engaging in energy partnerships with Russia to build pipelines. And so I think China's trying to walk a fine line, but at the same time, they have their own territorial disputes going on with other countries in Asia. And so if they come down too hard on Russia, then that can empower those countries who are trying to fight China right now about its activities in the South China Sea or Taiwan. It says we are an independent country. China, you have no claims on us, even though China says Taiwan's an extension of China. And right. so that type of ramifications that could play out, especially since there are concerns in the government, Washington, D.C., about China being this challenge for the United States in the future. And so there's not that much attention on China. It's conflicts, it's challenges with other countries, particularly Australia. People forget about that. Australia has its own issues with China that's been playing out, but we haven't covered mm -hmm. in that. And so it has widespread implications, that relationship between Russia and China for other types of activities they may engage in, in terms of supporting each other without being explicit about it, abstaining with votes in the UN or supporting resolutions. So it's something to definitely watch in the short term, but also long term of how those dynamics play out. Yeah, because it, it's interesting. You know, Australia is kind of dipping their toe into this as well as they're sending aid to Ukraine, whether it's, uh, I believe, you know, some weapons and, and food and what have you. And so as you mentioned how they have their beef, uh, if you will, with China, it and makes you wonder how, you know, could that trigger China saying, well, we're going to do something too. Since you stepped your toe in it, we will too. Well, they're already doing something because they have the Navy ships that were starting to encroach on the Australian border. I've been watching them. Right. Well, I, I meant as far as you bring, saying, oh. saying you know, we're going to go ahead and help out Russia in, in a way. So I would just say, and then if China engages in more activities that we don't like, it's mm -hmm. harder to do sanctions because of how integrated they are into the global economy, how they make so much of what, they, what we use in our daily lives. And then if it's Taiwan, Taiwan makes one of the largest exporters of semiconductors. So those chips that go in everything that we use nowadays. Oh yeah, COVID taught us where we get our stuff from and you know how stuff can shut down, how we're so connected globally. I think one of the lessons from that is from COVID was that, and if I remember correctly, I know it was for a while, China owns a lot of our debt as well. So I know that's always played a role in how we interact with China because they can call for a bill anytime they feel like it. <laughs> Yeah, there they could be a collection agency tracking us down, looking for their money. I'm not going to say any names, but we had a former administration that 
was impeached regarding the situation in Ukraine. They have recently come out and said, hey, if the Trump administration was still in place, we wouldn't even be in this situation. Do you think that's necessarily true? I kind of think so, but in the way that Trump was so unpredictable that Putin may have been unsure of how Trump would have responded if he engaged in this type of activities. Like Trump could have escalated it on social media. It's like, if you do this again, we're sending nuclear weapons out. So then you get into this back and forth that could be quite scary for all of us. Mm-hmm. And so in that sense, the unpredictability of Trump could have played in the U.S. interest. But I think in general, Putin had his sights set on Ukraine. This is something that goes back decades. It's in his right. mentality in terms of the way he views Russia and the region that it was going to reach ahead at some point. It's like sort of marching towards it. And we made decisions along the way, the United States and Europe, not to respond to Russia's act of aggression in a more aggressive way with like higher levels level sanctions than what took place after the first invasion of Ukraine in Mm -hmm. 2014. As you mentioned that, and I know you're a history person, you know, this is kind of the first time that I've seen in history and studied in history where you've had former leaders or people in leadership praising somebody who we aren't cool with, and they're openly doing it at, at different meetings, different conferences, interviews. It seems like no, I don't even know what my question is, really, but it, it, it seems like they're gassing up Putin's ego, which definitely doesn't need to be um, gassed up. But we know that, as you talked about, a state-run TV over there in Russia, that they are quickly taking clips from news shows here, or not even a news show, but a, a show that comes on a news channel here, or other clips people are saying, praising Putin and saying, look, this is why we're, we're right in what we're doing. Have you, in your study of, of history, ever seen anything like that? Uh, I think the one thing that comes to mind in what I was looking into uh, within the past week or so was that during the rise of Hitler and Nazi Germany, you had Nazi sympathizers. And I don't want to make the parallel like everything like terrible in the world makes you a Nazi, but that's just an example of going for that type of leader and people within democratic societies looking up or sympathizing with that type of system that is clearly infringing on the rights and destroying other groups of people. And so one of the things that's emerging now with this sort of like admiration for Putin or favoring Putin is that it feeds into a lot of what Russia has been trying to do globally, not just in Europe and the United States, but also in the global South of promoting traditional values. And that's where you see a lot of these figures like in Russia, not only because Putin is considered this like machismo leader, the strong man who's able to oversee the nation and guide it through troublesome times and assert his authority, but also because of how strong Russia opposes like diversity, the role of women, LGBTQ issues. And so they've been promoting that globally. There's an organization called the Foundation for National Values that's funded by and oligarch that had a conference in South Africa to help promote this type of thinking. And so I think what's coming out now in the for these different types of leaders, media figures, is feeding into that idea of traditional values of there's a set role for a man, there's a set role for a woman within a family, and this is how society should operate based on those principles, based on the challenge to diversity, based on the challenge to understand that 
people from different backgrounds, races, ethnicities, religions have a right to be mm -hmm. in power, to vote for their leaders, to be visible. Right. And it's interesting that, that you mentioned, you know, the Nazi sympathizers or even Nazis, because part of what Putin puts out his propaganda, right, is he's fighting Nazism that's happening in Ukraine. Of course, this is a place with a, their president has Jewish background. And it seems to be the complete opposite of what you just described, right, with, with their views. And so is this just a way of, of, of Putin trying to, I guess, pull more wool over the world or the global eyes of, look, I'm not doing war, I'm fighting nuts. Yeah, and I think part of what's not acknowledged in the media is that when Putin makes those statements, he's not necessarily talking to the West, the United States or Europe. He's talking to a Russian audience and trying to sell his war. And while he, he doesn't need the full support of the Russian people based on his actions on clamping down on civil society, he would still have like some ways that the society embraces and legitimizes what he's doing. And the other aspect is he's up for election in 2024. And so building on the road towards that, in order for him to remain in power, he has to constantly have some parts of the population see him as a legitimate leader. And so these arguments are helping to build that sort of legitimacy for the Russian public. Is it really an election though? Can we use the air quotes for his Yeah, you can't election. see me, but I was like, <laughs> election. And so it, it's it's really bizarre in terms of like, you know what the outcome is going to be. So why are you holding elections? And it's part of the performance that this regime engages in with the right. Russian population. Because wasn't he term limited out the, right. the last election, but they he, he changed okay. the rules so that he can keep the party going? Yeah, so essentially his party controls like the Russian version of Congress. And so it was supported to change the constitution that will allow him to serve until 2036. Another reason why he's trying to be in this position of fighting uh, the war in Ukraine is concerns about his own future in terms of like within the Russian system. The way you get out of power is you're not voted out. You, there's a coup or someone kills you. There isn't mm. like this quiet retirement that you engage in and say, you know what, I, I'm, I'm done now. I'm gonna just go to my vacation home and settle there. That's not how it plays out, especially for him to have maintained power this long, he pissed off a lot of people. <laughs> Right. <laughs> and so he could be just fighting for his survival right now in terms of, I don't want to die. <laughs> right. Which I, I, I'm like laughing about because it, it's something that doesn't come up. It just seems so ridiculous that to engage in these actions of survival so you don't die as a leader. But that's a reality there. So there could be somebody worse than him hanging around there. Yeah, it could. We don't know. And so that's the other risk calculation that the United States and the European leaders have to engage in, is that if you put the screws so much, you don't know who's coming next. And there are people who are more radical and hawkish than Putin right now, and they're part of his inner circle. And so you don't know if someone like that is just going to end up in power, or there's going to be a power struggle like the 1990s in which you have different opposing factions shooting each other on the streets and people dying in Moscow. You don't know what's going to happen. And so what's taking place now, while looking short term, has those long term ramifications about what will play out in Russia. And if the regime collapses, what happens to those weapon systems? Wow. Yeah. And, and you know, and I, I think that's what we wanted the people to hear and, and think about how this is 
you know, we can't get caught up in what recent leadership, past leadership has tried to make it just focus on America. You know, a lot of folks I'm worried about America, America only. We just need to look at America. We're part of a bigger picture, right? We're part of this bigger thing called Earth. And there's a bunch of different countries. And for us to really work and, and not have war, we, we have to work together and, and get along. And this is showing why you can't just be short-sighted. So there's a long game. There's a short game and a long game, right? And so, you know, I, I think it's important for the people to hear that from you. So I don't know if there's any thoughts you want to make sure that the people know or hear or even any resources they can go, even if, it, if it's things you're written, plug what you got, you know, where they can get more information and become better informed or educated on what's happening. Or even help provide peace. How can we even do that? What can we do to help? Yeah, I think in the short term to demonstrate support for your elected leaders that are favoring support for Ukraine so that they can hear it and they know that they're just not operating with a few constituents or social media buzz of what's going on and let them know that you are also considering the bigger picture of what takes place because that could have implications for U.S. policy. So if you don't want, say, the U.S. to devote more money to get into an arms race possibly with China in the future and have those funds go towards something like paying down <laughs> forgiving student loan debt. Yeah, those yeah, are yeah. options that have like practical everyday implications. I think for looking more into this issue, give a plug for my organization, the U.S. Institute of Peace. And so we're, we have come out with articles on our website by various people of our organization that explain some of what's taking place now, not only between Russia and Ukraine, but a piece that I co-authored with my colleague in our Africa Center looked at the ramifications of this war for people in Africa and what Russia is doing there. We also examined uh, the conflict in Syria as well as Russia-China relations. And so it's to tie that into looking at what's going on in the world and that we are a part of it and that we should be actively involved because right now you see people in Ukraine dying for the right to be able to vote for their leaders, to choose their futures. And so it just lets us know as Americans how precious what we have been able to maintain, especially based on the efforts of people of color over centuries to constantly sustain this democracy is so valuable and we need to continue that fight to just allow this system that we have to continue and to improve it in ways that allow everyone to actively participate, be part of decision making and be at the table. And could you real quick just give folks, I guess, a quick rundown of, about what is the U.S. Institute of Peace and even give the website because I don't think a lot of people have heard about this institute. Uh, you know, I, I like to think I'm fairly well connected and know people and, and this is like kind of the first time I'm, I'm hearing about y'all. Yeah, that makes sense because it sounds like a CIA front, U.S. Institute of Peace, but it's not, I can assure you, it's not a CIA front. And so it emerged decades ago with the explicit purpose of trying to address, mitigate, and prevent conflict in different parts of the world. And so one aspect of what they do is that they try to promote peace building efforts, 
and what goes into a peace process, such as dialogue, negotiation, domestically. But I let them know they need to ramp up those efforts to make people more aware of our institute. And so that's the work that we focus on. And so we cover the whole globe in different types of centers. And then people who focus more specifically of saying, how do you get two sides of a conflict, say in Syria, all the various factions. How do you get them at a table to discuss their issues so you can have resolution? And so what I see this on a smaller scale is I was living in Baltimore City for the past couple of years. And one of the things that they had were people to intervene in violence within Baltimore. And so it's sort of like that, but on a global scale in terms of violence within a country instead of a city. Okay, and, and to be fair, if you were a CIA front, you would still deny it. So I don't know if that's <laughs> going to convince people um, that you're not, right? Because you can't say that you are, or can you? I don't know, mind you. Um, <laughs> that is true. Even if it was a CIA front, I would deny that. But I can assure you it's not because just who I am as a person. That's I what I to yeah. say. You have a great cover. I don't know. No. Yeah. No, we, we know you're not. According to the website, no, you're not. You're nonpartisan, the independent institute founded by Congress. Uh, and, and, you know, you cover a lot of world conflicts, world issues. And so, you know, if folks want to learn more, from what I've seen, I would say they are a great resource. And maybe one day you can get a job there, too, doing some stuff. Go get your doctorates and learn how to speak Russian or another language. And boom, there you are. So. Nikki, I don't know if you have anything you want to add. I don't, because I think that we have covered a lot today. But I just, again, I want to just say how I appreciate you, Dr. Ashby, for coming here and chatting with us today. And like I said, just letting our listeners get like a real down-to-earth conversation without just little sound bites here and there and just getting the real nitty-gritty if you will, of what's going on. Yeah. So thank you. And if you're ever in, in Austin, Texas is big, so I won't say Texas because <laughs> you can be in Texas and still be 12 hours away. Exactly. So if you're ever in Austin or the Central Texas area, we would love to talk to you some more. And I think we'll try to talk to you some more about some things because we want folks to be informed. But yeah, definitely if you have an area to look us up uh, and hit us up and we'll make sure that you get some Southern hospitality and that Texas Absolutely. welcome. Absolutely. Yeah, I would love that. I've never been to Texas, but it's one of the places I want to visit now that we're coming somewhat out of the pandemic to start <laughs> traveling again and just have yes. good food. And I heard Texas has good food. Thank oh, you. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'll even do a shameless plug. It may be a, a, a panel that y'all can do for South by Southwest because they have yeah. it. It deals with technology, but there's also some non-technology conversations. This might be one of them, which would also be a plug for the Institute. Without once again getting folks familiar with who y'all are. That is a great idea. And I love the idea of going to South by Southwest. <laughs> my, my job's dime and not out of my own pocket. <laughs> right? Don't we all? Don't we all? Yes. But definitely thank you for for this yeah thank you for coming on and talking to us about this talking to the community about this you know this is very important for our time as well as very scary for our time with folks like you said not knowing what putin will do next you know i, I think these are conversations more of us need to have especially in the black community and understand how this is widespread and how it touches us because if war pops off you know there's a lot of us as in the military that can be impacted people who look like us who will be impacted one way or the other. Yeah, definitely. And so I've been extremely happy to 
have received this invite and to talk today. It's been so much fun and I appreciate the invitation and happy to provide additional information in the future if needed. I'm not sure how long this conflict will go, but it's going to continue to evolve, at least in the short term.